always good to be introduced by a poet. Gary, thank you for being my host and doing all this running around for me. Um, and thank you all for being here. I know that your studio has offered me plenty of competition. It should be. So I appreciate your being here. Um, and ladies and gentlemen, I would like to begin by introducing you to my dog, who is a, uh, a beloved dog that my wife and I got when he was half grown uh, at the pound. I don't know if you've ever done anything like this, gotten a dog at the shelter when it was half grown, but if you have, uh, you, you'll know what, you're in for some surprises, I'll put it that way. This poem is titled, Charles by Accident. Named Charlie, for the relaxed companionship we expected, he became Charles for his butler-like obedience. Though he went off duty the morning my wife walked back from the mailbox, watching him toss what looked like a red sock gloriously into the air, seeing it was actually the cardinal she had been feeding all winter. Why did she scream like that? Was the question his whole horrified body seemed to ask just before he disappeared, back soon at the door, black coat, white collar, all ready to serve us. Who was that other dog anyway? Who, on the other hand, was this one, chosen at the pound for his breed and small size, now grown into three or four different kinds of large dogs stuck together? <laughs> it wasn't his fault, of course, that in the end he wasn't Charlie, or even considering the way he barked at guests and sniffed them, Charles, exactly. Besides, it couldn't have been easy to be whatever sort of dog he was. Part retriever, he spent his winters biting ice and summer's dirt out of his tufted paws. Part collie, all he ever got to herd were two faux sheep, a wire-haired terrier that bit him back, and a cat that turned and ran up trees. An accidental sheepdog, Charles by accident, and our dog, only after he'd been disowned, he understood that life is all missed connections and plan B. The reason why, perhaps, no one could quite pat him or say good boy enough. And why, sometimes asleep, he mourned, working his legs, as if running to a place he could never reach, beyond Charles or any other way we could think of to call him. So here's, here's a much shorter poem about a dog, a country dog, that I think some of you will recognize. It's called simply, The Puppy. From down the road, starting up and stopping once more, the sound of a puppy on a chain, who has not yet discovered he will spend his life there. Foolish dog to forget where he is and wander until he feels the collar close fast around his throat, then cry all over again about the little space in which he finds himself. Soon, when there is no grass left in it and he understands it is all he has, he will snarl and bark whenever he senses a threat to it. Who would believe this small sorrow could lead to such fury. No one 
would ever come near him. Well, you just heard that um, from Gary that I live in Maine. I've lived in the three states of so-called Northern New England, uh, different periods of my life. So I want to read you now a Northern New England poem, which is titled, The Last Time Shorty Towers Fetch the Cows. I got the idea for this poem when I was reading in a local newspaper an account of a town historian who'd run across the story of a drunk man uh, who was in the history of that town who was out shingling his roof one afternoon with some others. And at a certain point, this drunk man abruptly stood up and announced he was going out to fetch the cows for milking. And he walked off the roof, killing himself. It's a funny story, at least it was told as a funny story. You know that grim Yankee humor. <laughs> uh, we, we don't know anything else about this man. I had to give him his name, Shorty Towers. We don't know anything else about him except that he lived his life in northern New England just as farming was beginning to pass out of existence. Again, the title, The Last Time Shorty Towers Fetched the Cows. In the only story we have, of Shorty Towers. It is five o'clock and he is dead drunk on his roof deciding to fetch the cows. How he got in this condition shingling all afternoon is what the son-in-law, the one who made the back pasture into a golf course, can't figure out. So with an expression somewhere between shock and recognition, he just watches Shorty pull himself up to his not-so-full height, square his shoulders, and sigh that small sigh, as if caught once again in an invisible swarm of bees. Let us imagine, in that moment, just before he turns to the roof's edge and the abrupt end of the joke, which is all anyone thought to remember of his life, Shorty is listening to what seems to be the voice of a lost heifer, just breaking upward. And let us think that when he walks with such odd purpose down that hill, jagged with shingles, he suddenly feels it open into the wide, incredibly green meadow where all the cows are. When I was a kid, I used to work in uh, some of the last farms along the Connecticut River, uh, in the Connecticut River Valley region on the New Hampshire side. Uh, and, and uh, you know, these were, the, these were the big old farms that are about to be broken up. Uh, and no doubt that, that early experience is behind a poem like that. Anyway, here's a different sort of a poem. Uh, back in the year 2000, I had all my hair buzzed off, including a little comb over thing that I kept on the top. So I sat in the barber chair and I looked down at this comb over that had been snipped off, was lying at my feet. <laughs> and I thought of all the noble service it had been providing over the years. And I almost felt sorry for the thing. So I was telling my friend Bill Rohrbach about this, you know, the writer Bill Rohrbach. He said, Wes, you should have saved the comb over. He said, you could have put it 
behind glass in the science building of that college where you teach, <laughs> next to the stuffed birds, with a plaque underneath that said, Professor McNair's comb over, August 2000. <laughs> you know, hearing him say that, I almost wish I had saved it, but I didn't save it. What I did instead was to write this poem in celebration of comb overs, wherever they may be. The poem is called, Hymn to the Comb Over. How the thickest of them erupt just above the ear, cresting in waves so stiff no wind can move them. Let us praise them in all of their varieties, some skinny as the bands of headphones, some rising from a park that extends halfway around the head, Others, four or five strings stretch so taut the scalp resembles a musical instrument. Let us praise the sprays that hold them and the combs that coax such abundance to the front of the head in the mirror, the combers entirely forget the back. And let us celebrate the combers who address the old sorrow of times passing day after day bringing out of the barrenness of midlife this ridiculous and wonderful harvest. No wishful flag of hope, but thick or thin, the flag itself, unfurl for us all in subways, offices, and malls across America. So let me turn now to a, uh, a short poem about my, my childhood. I should tell you that... Uh, when I was a boy, uh, my father abruptly left the family, which consisted then of my mother, my two brothers, and me. And he never came back, leaving my mother without child support. Um, and as you can imagine, uh, frustrated and angry a good deal of the time. Um, she took in sewing uh, to preserve the family uh, in a sort of a way she also uh, cut the hair of neighborhood children, boys, on Saturday. I still remember that she, that pair of clippers, cheap clippers that she had that would heat up, and she cut she cut my brother's and, and my hair last, and you, I can still feel the singeing of my ears <laughs> from those haircuts. Um, anyway, at a certain point after my father's departure, I sat down and drew a wanted poster, and I drew his face in the center of the poster, and of course at the bottom I wrote the word wanted, and that becomes the occasion of this poem, which is titled, How I Became a Poet. Wanted was the word I chose for him at age eight, drawing the face of a bad guy with comic book whiskers, then showing it to my mother. This was how, after my father left us, I made her smile at the same time, I told her I missed him. And how I managed to keep him close by in that house of perpetual anger, becoming his accuser and his devoted accomplice. I learned by writing to negotiate between what I had and that more distant thing I dreamed of. So, you know, if a poem can be written in one word, I really do think that was my first poem, that word wanted. So, you see, I came to poetry to talk about a broken family and a broken world. 
it probably is no secret to you, being artists yourself, I'm talking to the class about, about this a little bit this morning, probably is no secret to you that um, writers and artists of all stripes tend to share uh, this early biography of, of uh, pain and dislocation. Uh, it might not be an event so dramatic as mine, Perhaps it was just uh, a general sense of not fitting in and feeling misunderstood by that. Um, but it would make sense you wouldn't fit in, right? I mean, uh, artists being essentially right brain people in a left brain world. Um, Emily Dickinson could not tell time until she was a teenager. Uh, and the reason was when she asked her father how to do it, he explained and she didn't get it. And he was sort of cross, open and shut sort of a fellow, so she just decided she wouldn't ask again, and she put that aside for a long while afterward. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily recommend my childhood to anybody else on the one hand, but on the other hand, um, I see it now in my later life as a kind of gift because it helped to usher me into uh, my life as a poet. Perhaps you have a uh, similar story. That wouldn't surprise me. Anyway. Uh, eventually, my stepfather joined the family. Um, two of us had a difficult relationship, and, and I want to read you a poem now about a, a traumatic occurrence that happened once when I was a teenager, uh, and my stepfather became violent, as he sometimes did. Uh, and because this poem is based on a traumatic event, you know, a trauma, uh, and because traumas are those things that we learn by rehearsing them over and over, I knew exactly what I was uh, going to write about when I sat down to write this poem, which is a dangerous assumption, right, for any writer to have, that you know what you're going to write about before you write about it, because uh, invariably you're going to become stuck in this thing. And the chances are you'll get stuck in a moment when the poem has become smarter than you are, and you've got to be just smart enough to ask it what it wants to do. And sure enough, I got stuck in this poem. And at that moment, the poem carried me uh, into a direction I never thought I would go and taught me uh, more than I knew about myself and my stepfather and our relationship. So I'm going to do something different when I read this poem. I'm going to put my finger up like that when I come to the moment where the poem sort of took over. I'm sure you've had this experience, not just writers but artists, where it seems that the art itself um, has taken over uh, and is guiding you in a good way. It's called After My Stepfather's Death. Again, it is the moment when I left home for good and my mother is sitting quietly in the front seat while my stepfather pulls me in my suitcase out of the car and begins hurling my clothes. Though now, I notice for the first time how the wind unfolds my white shirt and puts its slow arm in the sleeve of my blue shirt and lifts them all into the air above our heads so beautifully. I want to shout at him to stop and look up at what he has made. But of course, when I turn to him, a small man, bitter even this young, that the world will not go his way. My stepfather still moves in his terrible anger, closing the trunk and closing himself into the car as hard as he can. 
and speeding away into the last years of his life. Maybe it's a good time to talk about process because you're all involved with that right now. But when I was uh, um, making this poem for the longest time, I, I, I had the shirts coming down out of the air and collapsing and deflating on hay stubble alongside the road. Because that's why I remembered the event in the first place, but also I liked the way uh, that the hay stubble poking up through those shirts imitated the pain I felt in this situation. But the poem didn't want to be written like that. You know, poems don't care what you want. <laughs> and uh, one, one day in frustration, I came to write my writing tablet and I had the stepfather throw the shirts up into the air and create something beautiful by accident. Uh, and in that moment, I came to see him as another creator who didn't have the privilege that I had of shaping this, this event into a poem and coming to understand it and know it through, through art. Uh, and at that moment, um, the poem began to edge toward forgiveness. You know, I don't think it's possible to write a poem out of vengeance purely, out of anger purely. Because as I mentioned this morning, I think the spirit of poetry, the spirit of art is a loving spirit. Uh, and so this poem helped to lift the trauma away, helped me to understand uh, my own pain uh, in its way, in this mysterious way. Speaking of uh, writing and writers, let me not finish this reading without a poem for writers, writers out there who spend so much of their time fussing over sentences and individual words and weighing their value and looking them up and all of that. So this poem is about one word, and the word is it. So the poem is titled simply, It. Don't fall for it. Don't scratch it. Don't spoil it for everyone else. Don't take it for granted. It's not anything to play with. It's not the end of the world. It's not brain surgery. That's not it. I used to have cravings for it. It's the last thing I need right now. I wish it would just go away. I can't take it anymore. Why is it so important to you? Why did you lie about it? Why can't you just be quiet about it? Is it? all about you? It's all sticky. It's giving me the creeps. It's worse than I thought. You're getting it all over yourself. This is no place for it. There's no excuse for it. Take it outside. Get over it. You know, it's said that writers carry the unresolved lives of others. Think about that. Writers carry the unresolved lives of others. And of all of the unresolved lives that I've ever known, the most unresolved certainly belong to uh, my brother John, who died of a heart attack when he was age 43. Um, John was a, was a jogger, a runner, and during the last six months of his life, he, he ran compulsively, as it now seems to me, sometimes nine and 10 miles a day. 
and his heart attack was related to his running. Anyway, during this period of his running, though the two of us were estranged for years, we became brothers again because he had some secrets that he wanted to tell me. I'm still honored that he chose me to tell the secrets too. Uh, it turned out he was having an affair, which nobody knew about, certainly his family didn't know about. So when he ran, he was a wildly, what, happy and a wildly desperate man, at one at the same time. And then in the middle of all this running, he died, leaving me with the secrets, leaving me uh, with his problems of the heart, which were more than physiological, uh, and, and leaving me with this, with whatever reasons I might be able to find for this compulsive running of his. So eventually, I wrote a long poem called My Brother Running uh, to try to figure out what he was running from and what he was running to. But it turned out before I could write that long poem, uh, I had to write this shorter one about the heart attack itself. And when I when I sat down to write this poem, um, all I wanted to do was scream to tell you the truth. All I wanted to utter was a long scream. Uh, and what I ended up with instead was this poem in one long sentence with a ragged margin about a wife and a son. And this is that poem called The Abandonment. Climbing on top of him, and breathing into his mouth this way, she could be showing her desire, except that when she draws back from him to make her little cries, she is turning to her young son, just coming into the room to find his father, my brother, on the bed with his eyes closed and the slightest smile on his lips, as if when they both beat on his chest as they do now, he will come back from the dream he is enjoying so much he cannot hear her calling his name louder and louder, and the son saying, get up, get up, discovering, both of them discovering, for the first time that all along he has lived in this body, this thing with shut lids dangling its arms that have nothing to do with him, and everything they can ever know, the wife listening, weeping at his chest, and the mute son, who will never forget how she takes the face into her hands now, as if there were nothing in the world but the face, and breathes, oh, breathes into the mouth that does not breathe back. So now... Um, now my brother is gone. Uh, still think about it all these years later. Now he's gone. Uh, he's no longer with us, as we say. Well, who then is he with? And where did he go? Somebody might say heaven, but I'm sure you've noticed how unpersuasive uh, and programmatic uh, the descriptions of heaven can be, especially in the mouths of the fundamentalists. Um, you know, don't swear or you won't go to heaven. Only the good people go there. And when you get to heaven, all your wishes will come true. I mean, what is there to be sad about or to, be, or to long for? Heaven being the perfect place. So just to clear up some of these mistaken impressions about heaven, these misconceptions, I being an expert on the matter, <laughs> 
I decided to write this poem in seven short parts called Mistakes About Heaven. So I'll just read these short parts one by one, numbering them. By the way, you know the, uh, the game of musical chairs, you're familiar with that? Mistakes About Heaven. One, contrary to what is said, longing exists there. Imagine the soul as one so involved with the music as it played the game of walking around the chairs, it discovered too late that it had no chair. Having lived its only life in the body, it sometimes misses the walking and the sitting down and above all, the music. Two, having done bad things can actually get you in particularly if you've been a parent and did bad things for the love of your children. Three, swearing is perfectly okay there, even though it's hardly practiced, cursing being a response to frustrations on earth that stand in the way of mortal service. These God damns every time he is asked. Four, those who deny themselves all enjoyment and preparation for heaven gain admission only because God feels sorry for them. <laughs> there is pleasure in heaven. God is known for the way he parties. Five, since the basest of human motivations are storing up wealth beyond measure and plotting for one's own future, as the sermon recommends, they have no honor in heaven. Six, the holiest are not the men who once looked upward in suits or robes to speak to a ghost, but the forgotten ones who sat beside trash barrels or beneath an overpass, listening to voices unsure of which to follow. Heaven is not up or down, but a place outside programs. Those most ready for it have spent their lives unable to make up their minds. Seven, and final, mysteries are not solved. The most heavenly experience is the feeling as in art of something imminent that never quite takes place. This is the feeling those who go there inhabit always. So let me change the subject for a minute and read you a poem about the movies. The movies and two old smokers in the movies, namely Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. Do you know those people? thought you knew those people. So this poem is titled simply Smoking. Once, when cigarettes meant pleasure instead of death, before Bogart got lung cancer and Bacall's voice called Smokey fell into the gravel of a lower octave, people went to the movies just to watch the two of them smoke. Life was nothing but a job, Bogart's face told us, 
expressionless except for the recurrent grimace. Then it lit up with a fire he held in his hands and breathed into himself with pure enjoyment until each word he spoke afterward had its own tale of smoke. When he offered a cigarette to Bacall, she looked right at him, took it into her elegant mouth and inhaled while its smoke curled and tangled with his. After the show, just to let their hearts race and taste what they'd seen for themselves, the audiences felt in purses, shirt pockets, and even inside the sleeves of t-shirts where packs of cigarettes were folded by a method now largely forgotten. Got a light, somebody would say. Could I bum one of yours? Never thinking that two of the questions most asked by Americans everywhere would undo themselves and disappear, like the smoke that rose between their upturned fingers, unwanted in a new nation, a smoke-free movie theaters, malls, and restaurants where politicians in every state take moral positions against cigarettes so they can tax them for their favorite projects. Just 50 years after Bogart and Bacall, smoking is mostly left in the hands of waitresses huddled outside fancy inns, or old clerks on the night shift in mini-marts, or hard hats from the road crew on a coffee break around the battered tailgate of a sand truck all paying on installment with every drag for bridges and schools. Yet who else but these who understand tomorrow is only more debt and know better than Bogart that life is work should be trusted with this pleasure of the tingling breath they take today. These cigarettes they bum and fondle, calling them affectionate names like weeds and cancer sticks, holding smoke and fire between their fingers more casually than Humphrey Bogart and blowing it into death's eye. I'm going to stay with America just for one more poem. Uh, I think maybe some people in this hall uh, will have their very own memory, some few of you, their, their very own memory of, of the day John Fitzgerald Kennedy was shot. Uh, and I do too. So I wrote a poem about that, but I, I didn't will this poem into being. As a matter of fact, I didn't even know I was going to write the thing until one evening on the news I was watching Obama during the campaign of 2008. And he was out campaigning in the open air. And I said, oh, maybe it's going to happen to him too. You know what I'm talking about? Did you have that, somebody? Uh, and then it occurred to me, that's when I discovered that this this um, original assassination of the early 1960s, after which the other assassinations came, that it, it still haunts me and haunts America, I think. So I wanted to go back to this mythic event and explore it and see what was up with it. So I wrote this poem in the form of a pantoum. You know what a pantoum is? Some of you poets maybe know, but I better explain it. A pantoum is an ancient literary form, poetic form, and if you write a pantoum, you have to make every stanza a four-line stanza. It's in quatrains. And there's a lot of repetition, recursion in the, in the pantoum, <clears throat> so that the second and the third lines of the first stanza 
are repeated as the first and the third lines of the second stanza, and so on and so on, until <clears throat> you get to the final stanza, which picks up the two lines in the first stanza that haven't been repeated yet. I'm not going to give you a quiz on this or anything, but I, I just, afterward, but I just want to make you aware there will be recursion, repetition in the poem, which is titled November 22nd, 1963. We were just starting out when it happened. At the school where I taught, the day was over. As far as they could tell, it wouldn't be fatal. But the principal couldn't finish the announcement. At the school where I taught, the day was over. I had a dentist appointment right after work, but the principal couldn't finish the announcement. By then, we now know, the president was dead. I had a dentist appointment right after work. On the way, I hurried home to tell my wife. By then, we now know the president was dead. I remember Jackie's pink pillbox hat in the film. On the way, I hurried home to tell my wife, turn off the vacuum cleaner, I shouted at her. I remember Jackie's pink pillbox hat in the film. I kept thinking I was going to be late. Turn off the vacuum cleaner, I shouted at her. I had never made her cry like that. I kept thinking I was going to be late. In one frame, Kennedy's head goes out of focus. I had never made her cry like that. The funny thing was, the dentist didn't care. In one frame, Kennedy's head goes out of focus. We didn't realize there would soon be others. The funny thing was, the dentist didn't care. We were just starting out when it happened. We didn't realize there would soon be others. As far as they could tell, it wouldn't be fatal. Well, we can stand only so much grimness. So now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to read you the shortest poem I ever wrote, uh, which uh, takes place in the early days of my family when we had these, when our kids were young and we had a couple of cats who were actually large kittens at a certain moment when the two of them went into heat for the first time at the same time. Uh, and it was a miserable experience for us all, as you can imagine, during which they made a sound which was less like uh, a meow than a man's name. So this poem is titled, Calling Harold. <laughs> Together at the window are two half-grown female kittens, suddenly long-necked and deep-eyed, stare all day, calling, Harold, Harold, over and over. I told you it was a short poem. <laughs> okay, three more poems. It's a wild period back there with the cats and those kids. <laughs> um, Probably the best thing I ever did was to marry my wife, Diane, but as I was saying earlier on, um, uh, you know, we were probably too young when we got married. I was 21 and my wife was barely 22, and she had two children from an even earlier marriage that she brought to our marriage, 
and we quickly had two more children. And this poem, which is about that wild period, is called The Rules of the New Car. After I got married and became the stepfather of two children, just before we had two more, I bought it, the bright blue sorrowful car that slowly turned to scratches and the flat black spots of gum in the seats and stains impossible to remove from the floor mats. Never again, I said, as our kids, four of them by now, climbed into the new car. This time, there will be rules. The first to go was the rule I made for myself about cleaning it once a week. Though why, I shouted to the kids in the rearview mirror, should I have to clean it if they would just remember to fold their hands? Three years later, it was the same car I had before, except for the dent my wife put in the grill when, ignoring the regulation about snacks, she reached for a bag of chips on her way home from work and hit a tow truck. Oh, the ache I felt for the broken rules and the beautiful car that had been lost and the car that we now had on soft shocks in the driveway still unpaid for. Then one day, for no particular reason except that the car was loaded down with wood for the fireplace at my in-law's camp and groceries and sheets and clothes for the week, my wife in the passenger seat, the dog lightly panting beside the kids in the back, all innocent anticipation, waiting for me to join them. I opened the door to my life. Somebody once said about families that families are where the most wonderful things happen and where the most terrible things happen. And that squares with, uh, with my experience. And probably some of you know about uh, the troubles that the elderly can sometimes bring to your, uh, to your families. <laughs> and this poem is about that. It's a new poem. It's called, When She Wouldn't. When she wouldn't. When her recorded voice on the phone said who she was again and again to the piles of newspapers and magazines and the clothes in the chairs and the bags of unopened mail and garbage and piles of unwashed dishes. When she could no longer walk through the stench of it in her don't need nobody to help me way of walking. With her head bent down to her knees as if she were searching for a dime that had rolled into a crack on the floor, though, not, though it was impossible to see the floor. When the pain in her foot she disclosed to no one was so bad she could not stand at a refrigerator packed with food and sniff to find what was edible when she could hardly even sit as she loved to sit all night on the toilet with the old rinsed diapers hanging nearby on the curtainless bar of the shower stall and the shoes lined up in the tub, falling asleep and waking up while she cut out newspaper clippings and listened to the late night talk on her crackling radio about alien landings and why the government 
had denied them. When she drew the soapy rag across the agonizing ache of her foot, trying over and over to wash the black from her big toe and could not because it was gangrene. When at last they came to carry my mother out of the wilderness of that house, and she lay thin and frail and disoriented between bouts of tests and x-rays, and I came to find her in the white bed of her white room among nurses who brushed her hair while she looked up at them and smiled with her yellow upper plate that seemed to hold her face together, dazed and disbelieving, as if she were in heaven, then turned, still smiling, to the door where her stout, bestroked younger brother teetered into the room on his cane all the way from Missouri with her elderly sister and her bald-headed baby brother, whom she despised. When he smiled back and dipped his bald head down to kiss her, and her sister and her other brother hugged her with serious expressions, and her childish astonishment slowly changed to suspicion, and the old wildness returned to her eye because she began to see this was not what she wanted at all. I sitting down by her good ear, holding her hand to talk to her about going into the home that was not her home. Her baby brother winking, the others nodding and saying, listen to Wesley. When it became clear to her that we were not her people, the one she had left behind in her house, on the radio, in the newspaper clippings, in the bags of unopened mail, in her mind. And she turned her face away so I could see the print of red on her cheek as if she had been slapped hard. When the three of them began to implore their older sister saying, Ruth, Ruth, and we come out here for your own good, and that time rolls around for all of us, getting frustrated and mad because they meant, but did not know they meant, themselves too. When the gray sister, the angriest of them, finally said through her pleated lips and lower plate, you was always the stubborn one, we ain't here to poison you, turn around and say something. When she wouldn't. So, hard things then can happen in families. Um, but wonderful things can happen too uh, in families, as we know. And wonderful things can happen in communities, for that matter, as witness uh, life here at the Vermont Studio uh, Center. So, um, I want to conclude with a poem in a different mood uh, about community and poetry in a main Grange Hall. You know, one of those old gathering places uh, in communities that you find in the little towns of New England. I should tell you about this poem uh, that a few winters back, a woman in my town called me up uh, and she said a bunch of Grangers were getting together at the next meeting and they were going to demonstrate and talk about her hobbies. And she wanted to know would I be interested in coming along 
to read some of my poetry and to talk about my hobby of poetry writing. <laughs> you can imagine I had mixed feelings about that. <laughs> but I went along anyway, and something wonderful happened. I was won over by these people at their supper downstairs in the Grange Hall, uh, and the, the meeting that, that we went to uh, upstairs uh, in the Grange Hall where they wore these wonderful long blue sashes. Some of them were, the higher-ups wore pink sashes. Uh, and they conducted their Grange rituals, pledged allegiance to the flag, and so on. It wasn't that I didn't know these people in the world outside of the Grange Hall in my town. I mean, I knew Francis and Dolly Lee, two people you're going to meet in this poem. Uh, and I knew the Grange officers themselves, out of costume, of course, in the town. And I also knew the two mentally challenged men who were there that night. Uh, but somehow, under the lights of this place, they became transformed for me. And to top it off, uh, when I stood up and read my poems, they listened carefully and respectfully and actually seemed to like them. So that's how the word heaven gets into the title of this uh, concluding poem, which is titled, Reading Poems at the Grange Meeting in What Must Be Heaven. How else to explain that odd, perfect supper? The burnished lasagna squares, thick clusters of baked beans, coleslaw pink with beet juice. How else to tell of fluorescent lights touching their once familiar faces? Of pipes branching over their heads from the warm furnace tree, like no tree on earth? Or to define the not quite dizziness of going up the enclosed turning stair afterward to find them in the room of the low ceiling, dressed as if for play. Even Dolly Lee talked into coming to this town 30 years ago from California, wears a blue sash, leaving each curse against winters and the black fly far behind. And beside her, Francis, who once did the talking, cranking his right hand even then, no doubt, to jumpstart his idea, here uses his hand to raise a staff, stone silent, a different man. For the Grange meeting has begun, their fun of marching serious face together down the hall to gather stout Bertha, who bears the flag carefully ahead of herself like a full dust mop. Then, marching back again, the old floor making long, cracking sounds under their feet like late pond ice that will not break, though now the whole group stands upon it, hands over their hearts. It does not matter that the two retarded men, who in the other world attempted haying for Mrs. Carter, stand here beside her, pledging allegiance in words they themselves have never heard. It does not matter that the worthy master, the worthy overseer, and the secretary sit back down at desks donated by school district number 54 as if all three were in fifth grade. Everyone here seems younger, the shiny bald-headed ones, the no longer old ladies whose spectacles fill with light as they look up, and Big Lenny, too, the trucker, holding the spoons he will play soon and smiling at me as if the accident that left the long cheek scar and mashed his ear never happened. For I am rising with my worn folder, 
beside the table of potholders, necklaces made from old newspaper strips and rugs braided from rags. It does not matter that in some narrower time and place I did not want to read to them on hobby night. What matters is that standing in, how else to understand it, the heaven of their wonderment, I share the best thing I can make, this stitching together of memory and heart scrap, this wish to hold together Francis, Dolly Lee, the Grange officers, the retarded men, and everybody else here levitating 10 feet above the dark and cold and regardless world below them, and me, and poetry. Thank you all for your kind attention.